0: Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.
1: And now I will be reading uh, the passage today. So we are reading from Luke 18, verses 18 to 23. Page 730 for the Bibles at the back, if you have not brought your own or do not have access to one. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still like one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Next passage is um, Colossians, verses 1 to 4, and then also 22 to 25. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory.
0: Jacko it's a really creative nickname Uh, my last name is Jackson and so it's Jacko there you go so um, good morning it's nice to see you Um, I I realized that um, two quick things one is uh, the other day I actually put on a shirt that looks like this a buttoned up shirt and my eldest daughter Stella said oh my gosh dad you look so dressed up Normally my, you know, my go-to is a T-shirt, and uh, there you go. But uh, you know, I'm dressed up for you guys today, so um, there you go. Um, the other thing to say is um, I don't know if we've formally introduced to you guys um, and to our family here at City Light Church North Adelaide our newest, smallest, youngest member of our church, uh, that being little young Willow sitting over here looking resplendent today, actually. Um, born a uh, couple of weeks ago? Good Friday, that's right, what a great day. Uh, Good Friday, uh, born to Tom and to Maggie and to little Jack, who I assume is next door in uh, City Kids today. So, I don't know, I feel like we should just clap and praise God and and welcome little Willow into our family. Um, If Tom or Maggie fall asleep in my message today, that's okay, but if anyone else does, you know, they have an excuse, right? There you go. Um, but uh, good morning. it's good to, good to have her amongst us, and if you haven't had a chance to... I haven't even had, had a chance to hold her yet. Um, I'd love to do that today, but, you know, maybe we'll just get a line-up outside and we can just, you know, all have a go. Um, please, if you would, keep your Bibles open uh, to Luke chapter 18 um, as we continue in our series uh, this morning, uh, looking at work. Uh, work. Is the topic we've been looking at for a couple of weeks now. Uh, we're at um, we're at work. We're at week three in this short little topical series, uh, looking at work, work and worship, reconnecting the daily grind to the glory of God. It's it's a little bit unusual for us around here at City Light Church, North Adelaide, to have a series like this. Uh, normally, the way we roll around here, our normal rhythm, uh, is to. Um, choose a book of the Bible, and just systematically work our way through that text of the Bible, letting God set the agenda for us. Uh, but occasionally, we jump out of that rhythm and look at what the Bible has to say about a particular topic. And uh, we've chosen work, uh, what we do for our jobs. That's what we've been doing. Um, why this series, you ask? Um, it's a great question. Thanks for asking. Um, a couple of weeks ago, when I was at the door after the service, someone came up to me and said, um, why are we doing work? And I said, well, it's, it's a big subject. It's a big part of our lives. And this person was like, I feel like I've needed to hear this for a long time. Um, why are we doing work? Why are we doing work? Well, most people in the West, most of us in the West, will work well over 40 hours per week in our lifetime, right? But if we just you know, set the average at 40 hours per week and we worked for, like let's say, 40 years of our lives, That means we'll spend 80,000 hours at least doing our jobs at work. Um, That doesn't include the commuting to and from work. Uh, That doesn't include, you know, sort of trips that you might do in addition, you know, on a plane or on a bus or whatever it is, you know, for your work. That doesn't include the time you spend training to do the job you're going to do, like at university or TAFE or an apprenticeship. In addition, right, the average worker in Australia, you and I, will work on average 2,200 hours per year and will only spend about 100 hours maybe gathered together like this in a church context. So we as leaders here at North Adelaide thought it might be good to disciple you, and if I speak personally, myself, about how to live like Jesus, how to love like Jesus in the place where you spend possibly like 50 percent of your waking hours for a long time a big part of my role as lead pastor here and as one of the elders is to equip you for life to equip you for all of life and if all of life as followers of jesus is worship then a great deal of our worship right is going to take place when we're doing our jobs So we all need to see how work is actually a significant part of our worship. So that's what we're thinking about, this idea of reconnecting work and worship, the daily grind to the glory of God, living as Christians in this world, certain of the next. Now, if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, we began this series week one. We looked at how we ought to love work. We were made for work. The Bible says to us, God is a worker. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we're made in his image as human beings, male and female, and so we work. And work is good. Work is good. Um, work, our, this sort of toil that we do every day, was part of who we were made to be, before the fall, before sin entered the world. And so work is not this like necessary evil that we have to do because we rejected God and God is punishing us, so we're stuck at work. Work's good, works good. And we ought to love work. That's what we looked at first week. Second week, last week, uh, we looked at how with the advent of sin, with the fall, work becomes frustrating and and, and a little bit fruitless at times. God deliberately frustrates our work and that's a big you know we got to realize that we still got to hold attention right god, work is good and your work can be also frustrating and hard and god has made it that way today we're going to explore really hope hope at work hope in the workplace that's really what we're going to do today and i to get us started i want us to turn to paul's letter to the colossians chapter 3 and verse 17 hear the word of the lord it's on the screen Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray as we think about work and hope in light of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this day. Father, thank you for bringing us here. Father, many of us are tired. Many of us Perhaps they're even confused, bewildered. Uh, Father, we pray uh, that this morning you'd speak to us by your word. Remind us of what truly matters. Father, speak to us through Luke 18, through Colossians 3. Help us to listen to you speak to us. And Father, we remember today as well, those who've given the ultimate sacrifice in laying down their lives, that we might be free so remember those service men and women, past and present, who serve us in order to allow us to enjoy the freedoms we do, but not to belittle their sacrifice. We thank you above all for the sacrifice of Jesus, who laid down his life for not his friends, but his enemies. And so we pray, Father, as we think about your word, we would pray, Lord, that we would see Jesus. We would hear Jesus and that we would love Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. As we think this morning about hope in the workplace, I want to highlight two traps as we start that can hinder our flourishing when it comes to work. Two traps, idleness or idolatry. They're on the screen. Idleness or idolatry. Idleness, idle, I D L E. Idol, I-D-O-L. Idleness, at its root, is a complete lack of activity. Idolatry, at its core, is deriving our ultimate satisfaction or finding our identity from anything other than our creator, other than our maker. Now, one of these traps, right, idleness, causes us to treat work the daily grind, as an inconvenience or an obstacle to the life that we really want or simply a means to an end. I just work to get money. That's what I do work for. Um, in the book, uh, The Gospel at Work, uh, this little book here, which I can highly recommend as a book worth getting your hands on, The Gospel at Work, um, Sebastian Trager, one of the uh, co-authors of this book, tells a story of what would become the first of many startup kind of ventures or businesses in his life. Um, he, had, he started a business when he was at high school doing deck sealing. This is what deck sealing looks like. There you go. Anyone done a bit of that for their life before? There you go. That's there there you go, a few people, yeah, you can identify. Deck, ceiling. Um, he writes that his driving motivation for this business of deck ceiling wasn't to provide excellent service, wasn't to make the neighbourhood in which he lived look really beautiful. He tells us that his driving motivation was to seal as many decks as possible in as little time as possible, with as little effort as possible, for as much money as possible. That's what he wanted to do. Seal as many decks, little time as possible, little effort, make lots of cash. That's his motivation. He goes on to say in his book, right, that because his core motivations were off, his work was rubbish. So he would fail, right, to move pot plants on the decks, right? So he would seal the decks but not move pot plants and then seasons change and people at homes would move their pot plants into a different spot to catch the sun only to find an unsealed ring on the deck. So they'd ring him on his phone and say, you're dodgy, come back and fix it. So we'd have to go back and reseal the spots on the deck. Um, There you go. You see, when you under-identify with your work, when we treat it as just simply a means to an end, idleness at work is the result. Now, when we think about idleness, right, we're not to think about total inactivity. That's not what's on view here. I mean, few of us, right, if any of us, are completely idle, yeah? But there are subtle forms of it where we under-identify with our work. Here's a few you may recognise. We under-identify with work when we fail to recognize God's purposes for us in our workplace. We under-identify with work when we restrict our value as a Christian person simply to the things that we do in church or gospel-related stuff. We under-identify when we think, well, I'm just going to do the bare minimum to get through the day. We under-identify when we see work as just simply a necessary intrusion into real life. That's idleness, one trap. The other trap, the other side of the equation, idol, idolatry, is perhaps, I don't know, I dare say not uniquely Western, but a particular issue in the Western world, very much Australian, where we idolise our work, where work somehow becomes part of my identity. Work becomes something that is the ultimate satisfaction. Um, several years ago, when I was working at a church in Sydney, I was, uh, got to know a guy there who, while I was serving at the church, he lost absolutely everything. Um, he was a prolific businessman. And he had this, I don't know, almost otherworldly sense of knowing what the market was doing or what the market would do in the future. It was, you know, kind of amazing. He'd amassed this significant wealth. He was really well-known. Then It all collapsed the bottom fell out global financial crisis 2008 i'll never forget the the sense of despair that kind of consumed him much like you know maui's declaration in moana without my hook i am nothing his statements about his situation initially shifted from i have nothing to i am nothing why Because his identity was so wrapped up with what he did, the life that he would built, the status that he'd gained. It's no wonder that he was despairing when he lost it all, when it all fell apart. In the time that I was serving at this church, he he missed family gatherings, he missed sporting events, he missed theatre shows, he missed holidays, he was very rarely at church why all for the in the name of that one more meeting the one more email the one more phone call the one more deal his hope as i talked to him was ultimately not in jesus his hope was in his success his sales and his status idleness or idolatry two traps here's a question do either of these traps sound like the abundant life Jesus promised to you? Do either of those sound like the, the flourishing that God designed for us and that he, what he desires for us? The answer to both of those questions, I hope, is obvious. It is a resounding... That's not a resounding. A resounding no. No. God does not want us to be idle or idolatrous at our work. God wants us to flourish and take delight in our work. God desires to get his glory through the work we do and the things we produce through our work. But not in those two traps. Wonderfully, right? God's glory is the means to our ultimate satisfaction. God's glory is the means to our greatest flourishing. Now, to help us see this, right, Luke records for us in his gospel an encounter that he has with a very wealthy young ruler. Hope you flick, if you flicked quickly to, Luke, um, to Colossians 3, flick back with me to, to Luke chapter 18. Where Jesus has this encounter with a wealthy young ruler Luke 18 and verse 18 the young man that Jesus encounters has had, he's had success, he's got wealth, he's a powerful guy, made evident by the fact that he's called, right? He's referred to as a ruler. The question he asks Jesus, right there in verse 18, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The question he asks, I think, is earnest. I think it implies that he knew that wealth and material stuff doesn't qualify a person for inheriting eternal life. Note that eternal life isn't simply like unending life. It's a future promise and a present possession for those who trust and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Having eternal life, knowing that death is not the end, that enriches life, it matures us, it transforms us today all the way through to eternity. The young ruler didn't have this treasure. And if there was something he could do to get it, he wanted to know so that he could do it. Jesus' answer is brilliant. His answer to the question is brilliant and exposes our inability to obtain by ourselves abundant, flourishing, eternal life. Chapter 18, verse 20. Jesus in answer, You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your Father and... Your mother. Jesus knew that the young man's righteousness was defined by what he could produce in his power. The young ruler's response proved Jesus' assessment of him. Uh, Luke 18, verse 21, he says, in response to Jesus, All these I've kept since I was a boy. Since he was a boy, he says, I've kept the commandments. The level of willpower and self control probably contributed to much of his success in an earthly sense he'd carefully cultivated and curated his life he'd kept himself morally and ethically clean and in many ways right he's a man he's a person to be admired and yet with all that he'd accomplished and gained morally ethically professionally relationally he still lacked eternal life the one thing he believed he wanted more than anything else and in one sentence jesus was about to expose the flaw in what the young man thought was his best quality chapter 18 verse 22 when jesus heard this he said to him you still lack one thing sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven Then come follow me when the young man heard what Jesus said he was devastated. Luke 18:23 when he heard this he became very sad because he was very wealthy. He had incredible wealth And the thought of losing that wealth and losing losing all the trappings that came with it was a true greater pain to bear. He could not relinquish the wealth and the power. Following Jesus for him was not worth giving up all that he'd gained. The young man had built a life of external righteousness, but he lacked a genuine relationship with God. His identity and his status was tied to his position, and his power, and his possessions. And once Jesus exposed it, he knew it, right? He knew that he couldn't give up that which he depended on to rely then entirely upon Jesus. Now, just so we're clear, right, Jesus is not saying that the only way to eternal life is to sell everything you have and give it all to the poor. That's not what Jesus is saying. But Jesus is reminding us here that if we're not willing to relinquish something, in order to have a relationship with God, then that something's become an idol, preventing us from obtaining eternal life. A rich, young ruler, right? He was a, he was a righteous, he was an upstanding man by any earthly measure. I think he'd fit in really well in Adelaide. Very, very polite, very noble, very, you know, very good. He idolised his work, he idolised his wealth, he idolised his position and he idolised his power. And all that estranged him from the life Jesus desired for him. When we idolise our work and when we worship what it provides for us, power, possessions, prestige, money, we will sadly push following God aside. As I said, you know, to, to over-identify with our work where somehow our what we do becomes way too bound to who we are as individuals, that it becomes part of our identity. You know, work will just become idolatrous, like the rich young ruler. But we can also under-identify with our work and become idle, I-D-L-E. Now, the most dramatic form of idleness is complete inactivity, which should never characterise a follower of Jesus. Why? Because the one who does not work shall not eat, Paul writes to the Christians in Thessalonica. But the warnings we find in Scripture are not just about doing nothing. They're also about sort of going about our work kind of mindlessly, or they warn us about going about our work begrudgingly. In other words brothers and sisters it's not it's not enough to just work to just work rather why we work and the way we work really matters and Paul addresses this in his letter to the Colossians chapter 3 verse 22 to 23 But to feel the force of what Paul actually says, we need to see what Paul says in those verses in the context of the broader argument. So Paul opens, if you turn with me, go forwards to Colossians chapter 3, Paul opens the third chapter of his letter. We've added the chapter sort of numbers and things like that. They didn't have chapter numbers and verse numbers when it was first delivered to the Colossians, but you know, if they were, when we get to chapter 3, Paul opens with this, since then... He's writing to Christians, people who've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, his his sin-smashing death and his death-crushing resurrection. He's writing to Christians and says, "'Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ.'" Before Paul says anything about how we are to work, he reminds us of who we are in Jesus. He says, since God has raised Jesus from the grave, so the one who believes in Jesus has, in a sense, died themselves and risen where he is. Paul writes here not of a physical death, but of a mental, emotional, and sort of spiritual death in some sense. If you've come to know Jesus, you've died to your former loyalties, If you've come to know Jesus, you've died to all your former ideologies. If you've died to Jesus, then you've died to all your former preoccupations. And in identifying with Jesus completely, you've been raised from the rubble of your former life and you've been made new, in whole, not in part. And in this newness, right, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've taken on Jesus' loyalties... You've taken on his ideologies. We've taken on his loves. We're now preoccupied with what Jesus desires. If you're a Christian, you're new. You've been raised with Jesus. But this is not a static thing, right? It's dynamic. One that demands something of us now as followers of Jesus. Our newness of life by the Spirit, results in a radical change of mind and motivation that results in a new way of thinking that impacts our living. We're called now to orientate our whole lives around our new reality. But how? What's what Paul writes in these opening verses of chapter 3. He says, firstly, we reorientate our lives around this new reality by what? First setting our... Hearts on the things that are above where Jesus is. The word seek, there is, you know, setting our hearts, seeking the things that are above, literally means to pursue with diligence continually. So this is no passive posture, but an active one. It's not, well, I set my hearts on things above 21 years ago when I became a Christian and I've, spent the next 21 years setting my heart and mind on other things. It's a continual thing as a follower of Jesus to be setting our hearts on the things that are above. Grace, God's amazing grace, doesn't free us from the responsibility for our spiritual growth. Instead, grace creates the, the context in which we responsibly and diligently and continually chase the things that reflect the character of God whilst never being in danger ever of losing God's love and affection for us we must not lazily approach our spiritual growth we have work to do and work is not wrong when seen rightly eh? this is not in my notes because Adele isn't in the room, I can do this, right? You know. She always says, "Don't go off track. Don't go off track. Don't digress." I'm like, "But I want to digress." One of my fears, if I can put myself in an older category of being a Christian for a little while, one of my fears with the contemporary Western evangelical church is that we're so into grace that we've, we've kind of jettisoned obedience. We've jettisoned hard work. It's all about grace. God will do it all. I've just got to trust him and he'll just sort of do stuff in me. It's, the Bible doesn't say that. Yes, we're saved by grace. Yes, we come to Jesus. We come to God with empty hands. We bring sin and he gives us eternal life. How ridiculous is that? But over and over again, as followers of Jesus, we're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to follow Jesus, to actively, continually pursue the things that are above. I fear that many of us have kind of embraced Jesus and then, I don't know, sat under a tree, crossed our legs and gone, um, in the hope that God will just dump stuff into us and we'll be radically changed to be like Jesus. It just doesn't work like that. Grace creates the context, gives us the power to pursue responsibly and diligently and continually the things that reflect the character of God, that we would, in concert with the Holy Spirit, become more like Jesus. That takes work, commitment. This is not in my notes, but church, let's not be a lazy church. Let's be a church that diligently continually pursues the things that are above not to earn our salvation but because we are in the family of God and our role in this world is to image the father for the sake of all people. Jesus is the king and his concern should occupy the Christians, Jesus, all Christians, Jesus is at the center and every aspect of us is to orbit around Him at rest, at work, at play. Paul secondly says, you know, how do we How do we embrace this new reality? He says we set our minds on the things above. We set our hearts on the things above. We set our minds on the things above. Setting our minds means that we not only think new thoughts, but we now have a new settled way of understanding and actively engaging our intellectual faculties to think about what matters most. What matters most is that Jesus is king and his father, future, present kingdom is here. That's what matters most. And so it's in that context, right, that everything now flows in chapter 3 of Colossians. And how the new life in Christ operates as we live in the world, clinging to the source of our new life, the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that have to do with work? Everything how we work, why we work, the way we work, it's all impacted by our new, way, our new life, our new way of thinking, our new way of being, oriented around Jesus. So when Paul summarises this whole section with those words we read right at the beginning, verse 17, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, he's saying that in light of those opening two verses, we do what we do in the name of Jesus. We do it with gratitude. We do it with thankfulness. Why? Because we're new people with new minds, with new lives, with new motivations, with a whole new perspective. Everything has changed. And so the way we work, the why we work, changes also. In fact, when Paul says there in verse 17, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, that, that sort of phrase, word and deed, was common it's a common way of referring to the totality of how someone engages with the world. You know, To do everything in the name of Jesus doesn't simply mean that you're sitting at your workstation at work and you're just constantly uttering, I do this in the name of Jesus, I do this in the name of Jesus, I do this in the name of Jesus. Like, that's not what it is. To do everything in the name of Jesus means you act in concert with his nature and his character wherever you are whatever you're doing so just a few verses later within this context paul writes colossians chapter 2 verse 3 verse 22 slaves obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the lord whatever you do work at it with all your heart as working for the lord not for human masters Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Now, just a couple of thoughts here unrelated to the main idea. First, I don't have time this morning to do a thorough study of Paul's view of slavery, but it's clear, verse 25 of chapter 3, that he did not oblige it. And he believed that the Lord would bring justice and recompense without partiality. And second thing to say here, there is a really big difference between servitude in the Greco-Roman culture of the first century and the chattel slavery of the Americas of more recent times. Really big difference, but I can't go into that in detail now. But for us today, let's focus on the heart of what Paul's words are here for us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to do all our work with all of our heart. Not half hearted, not begrudgingly. The word translated sincerity of heart literally means from your soul. Work from the seat of your soul. Give yourself, give your entire self to your work with a good heart and with integrity. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures say, work hard. We've to work hard, not just when your manager is watching you, by the way, even when she's away on holidays. Work hard. Even when you have a terrible, dodgy boss, a boss who maybe lacks integrity, a boss who doesn't do the work you're meant to do very well themselves, you still work at it with all you have. And you do so from a place of gratitude, without idleness of any kind. Why? Because you're working for Jesus and his glory, not them. Because as you work, you're displaying the new life in Christ, complete with heavenly thoughts, a renewed mind, and a new orientation around Jesus. That changes the way you work, why you work, and it changes For whom you work, you and I work for the glory of Jesus. How does this idea change the way you show up tomorrow, Monday morning, first thing? In all kinds of ways. It's got to change the way you turn up tomorrow. I don't know, even if you're in the best place you've ever been in your walk with Jesus, you'll have a leaning, right? you'll have a leaning either towards idolatry or a leaning towards idleness. And the call of God to you and I, his children this morning, is don't be idle, I-D-L-E, and don't be idolatrous at work. So which is it? Are you leaning towards idleness or idolatry? What I want you to do now is just stand up and move to one side of the room. No, I'm not going to ask you to do that. Um, In their book, uh, were you scared? No. Um, In this book, um, Sebastian Traeger and Greg Gilbert offer some really helpful diagnostic questions on this area of, you know, are you idle or is work an idle? They're questions you can ask yourself, but I I think they would better serve you to discuss them in community, like at least with someone else. Ideally, I think, to discuss them in your DG would be a really great place to do. And I think that was something, um, you know, Nick mentioned, get in a DG. I want to reiterate, get in a DG. Um, It's vital to your health, I think, as a follower of Jesus as we live in this world. But um, here here are the diagnostics. Am I idle in my work? Three questions. Is my work merely a means to an end, a place to serve my own needs? Second, does my work totally frustrate me? Three, has my work become separated from my Christian discipleship? Has work become an is idol for you? Here's the other one, three other questions. Are they there? Yeah, is work my idol? Is work, firstly, the primary source of my satisfaction? Second, is my work all about being the best so I can make a name for myself? And thirdly, has my work become all about making a difference? In the world there's heaps more questions we can ask right but these are six questions to start i think digging around in our hearts for our motivations and i'm going to share them uh, with our dg leaders to pass on perhaps you can talk about this week our response to these truths this morning is challenging but it's really straightforward here it is commit your work to the lord commit your work to the lord it's the remedy for the idol or your idol. When we commit our work to the Lord, we work for Him, not others. We will work for Him and not ourselves. We will be free. Now, if you have questions about how to move towards this freedom, I'd love to help you. I want to you know, Send me a message on Slack, uh, complete a Connect card up the back, and, and I'll be in touch with you this week if you want to know what this freedom is like. But... I'll share some resources this week on Slack, um, probably on our Equip channel, that'll help you avoid work becoming an idol or being idle. But for those among us this morning who haven't committed yet to following Jesus, you can certainly try and apply what we've thought about this morning to your work and to your life, but its full effectiveness rests in you first deciding to trust and follow Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope you can see what Jesus is offering you this morning. A life following Jesus is where no matter experiencing satisfaction in work or experiencing dissatisfaction with your job, you are offered an an everlasting motivation for your work. A motivation that sustains you through seasons of deep dissatisfaction and centres you around what really matters in the world. All that is required to have this gift of Jesus is to do what the rich young ruler couldn't do. Lay all you have at the feet of Jesus and follow him. You need Jesus' life and power in you. But first you must repent and believe. Repent means to turn away from doing life on your own terms, rejecting God's loving rule over your life. Believing is to trust Jesus' words about himself, what he accomplished in his life and through his death, and to trust and believe what he says is true about you. If today is the day where you want to turn to Christ, then do it. And let me know so I can help you get started in this life that Jesus has for you. If you're you don't know what the gospel is, we've got copies of this little booklet up the back, Greg Gilbert's book What is the Gospel? One of the other co-authors of this book. They're free. I'd love you to take one. I'd love to chat with you about it. But let me finish by just addressing those of us in the room who do love Jesus. Who do trust him. What if we what if we as Jesus people worked in a way so utterly different to those around us that it just boggles their mind? What if we were on time? Diligent? Good-natured? Honest? Just? What if we were the one in the office who was the first to welcome the new guy or girl on deck? And what if, what if, if Jesus' people right, we were just, we were proactive not doing all these things to look good, but doing all these things because we know who we are in Jesus? What if we were successful, not through tireless, endless grind so that we might make a name for ourselves, but through healthy rhythms of work and rest, making God most honoured and glorified in all that we do? Do you believe, brothers and sisters, that the world would be awakened to a a different way, a better way? I do. I do. That's the Bible's vision for us generally. It's the Bible's vision for work. It's our vision. But it begins with us, you and me, in concert with the Holy Spirit, living in an attractive and transformative way. I believe we can. And I believe we will at City Light Church North Adelaide. Let's help one another, yeah? In it together. So this week, tomorrow, go for it. Live in an attractive, transforming, God-glorifying way. Work like that. Not for your glory, but for the glory of God. Is work an idol? Or are you idle? What would Jesus have you do? So that not only you would be different, but so that others can be blessed by your difference. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for what your word teaches us about work. As we've looked at over the past few weeks, Father, we thank you and praise you that um, work is good. You've made us to be workers in your image. You've made us to be men and women who participate in what you're doing in the world, filling the earth, subduing the earth, tilling the soil, bringing things to life. Thank you that we get to participate in that with you. We recognize, Lord, this morning, the reality of the fallen world in which we live, its brokenness, which means even our toil, our work is frustrated. But thank you that there is hope to be found in our work. Thank you, first and foremost, that we, many of us in this room, have by your grace and through the work of your Spirit, grasped the truth of the gospel Thank you, Father, that you've rescued us from sin and you've joined us to Jesus, the eternal life. Father, with a renewed hope and a radically different perspective on how the world is going, help us to live and work in particular as your ambassadors. Father, protect us from being idle, for the simply going about our work to get to the end of the day or just to make money. The Lord, also protect us from making work an idol. Protect us from finding our sense of self and our identity in what we do. Remind us afresh this morning as we sing now, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Remind us that our true identity is found in jesus his life his death his resurrection and his certain and imminent return and father may that perspective shape how we do all of life and in particular our work and lord we ask you to work in us by your spirit through your word and we ask this in jesus name and all god's people said